Hi, I'm Walter Lane, and you've tuned in to a sermon podcast from the Netherwood Park Church of Christ in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for listening. you this morning. I was a little disappointed in that response, so let's try that again. Good morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank all of you who brought shopping bags this morning. Appreciate you taking the challenge, bringing those in, and I assure you that those will be put to good use. They'll be filled up with food. They'll be handed out to people who are hungry. Their lives will be blessed, and they will feel the love of God because of what you did. So thank you for doing that. We're going to continue our uncomfortable sermon series this morning, and as we do that, I want to set the stage for what we're doing by asking those uncomfortable questions we've been asking ourselves. You know, we live in a place and in a time when it's easy to call yourself a Christian and still be comfortable in the world, and because of that, it's really important that we ask ourselves, has our Christianity become too comfortable? Has it become too easy? Has it become too cheap? And it's also important to ask ourselves if our comforts and our quest for comforts, if those things are holding us back, are they anchoring us in our boats and holding us back from following Christ? And you know, as we read and we study our Bibles, it becomes painfully obvious that walking with Jesus was never meant to be comfortable. If you have looked at your bulletin this morning, if you've read the front page article, Zane and Addison address that very issue in that article. See, Jesus promises his followers hardships. Jesus promises his followers persecution. And if we're going to stand with Christ, we have to be willing to stand in opposition to the things of this world that are not Christ-like. And we all know that standing in opposition is uncomfortable. So several weeks ago, I gave you seven warning signs that would indicate that your Christianity has indeed become too comfortable, too closely conformed to the world, instead of transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And many of you probably have those seven warning signs just about memorized by now, but we're going to review them again. Sign number one, your Christianity has become too comfortable if there's no friction between your Christian walk and your partisan politics. Sign number two, your Christianity has become too comfortable if the amount of time and the amount of money that you give to your church doesn't require you to sacrifice any of your own desires. And sign number three, the sign that we'll be talking about next week, 
your Christianity has become too comfortable if you don't have any time during your week for even the simplest of spiritual activities. Sign number four, it's the first sign that we explored. Your Christianity has become too comfortable if there's no noticeable difference between you and the world around you. If your Christianity is well camouflaged. And sign number five, we talked about this three weeks ago. Your Christianity has become too comfortable if there's no mystery in your relationship with God. If you're never surprised by God. If you think that you know all there is to know about God. If you think that you have God all figured out. Warning sign number six we talked about last week. Your Christianity has become too comfortable if you have lost your compassion for those who are less fortunate than you. If you're not moved by those who are vulnerable, by those who are suffering. And warning sign number seven, it's our warning sign for this morning. Your Christianity has become too comfortable if what you do on Sunday mornings, if what you do in this assembly has no impact on you or the rest of your week. Or to put it another way, your Christianity has become too comfortable if worship leaves you unchanged. If you're the same person walking out of here that you were when you walked in here. If that's the case, I would suggest that your Christianity has become too comfortable. So what do I hope to accomplish this morning? Well, my goal this morning is for each of us to leave here more open to change. More open to being changed by God than we were when we first arrived. And to help us move toward that goal, let me ask you a couple of questions. These are very personal questions. So they're very personal. I don't want you to answer out loud. That would be way too uncomfortable for me and for everybody else. But I do want you to answer, every one of you, to honestly answer each of these questions to yourself. First question. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here? Why are you sitting here in this building at this time with these people? I'll give you a a minute. Be completely honest with yourself. Why are you here this morning? Second question. What were your expectations this morning when you walked through those church doors? What were your expectations? What did you expect to happen here? What did you expect to hear and see and feel and experience here? Let me give you another moment. In all honesty, what were your expectations as you entered those doors? Now a final and not so personal question. Why are we, as followers of Christ, why are we even called together to worship? Why do we have these worship assemblies? Why did God see fit to bring his children together on a regular basis to worship him? Why are we called together? Why are we called together to worship 
him. You're probably coming up with lots of reasons why God called us together to worship him. But none of those reasons are because we worship a needy God. We aren't called together because he needs our presence. We aren't here to fulfill God's needs. No, he calls us together because of our needs. God calls us together because we, as children of God, as a family, we need to be in the presence of our Father. And our Father, God, can certainly be found here, in this place, among his people. We're called here to enter into the presence of God so that we can worship him together. We're not called here to worship an absent God. We're not called here to worship a distant God. We're not called here to worship a dead God or an asleep God. We're called here to worship a God who is near us. To worship our God who is among us. So what I want us to do is I want us to explore what happens to people when they enter into God's presence. And that should be obvious, right? It should be obvious that it just isn't possible to be in the presence of God. To be in the presence of the holy God and not be impacted by some powerful way. And we're going to dig into some Bible stories and we're going to see how God's presence impacts his people. But before we do that, let me make just a couple of quick observations These are a couple of observations for us to keep in mind as we look at those stories. The first observation I want us to keep in mind is articulated very well by Richard Foster. Many of you know who Richard Foster is. He's the one who wrote that book that's been very impactful called Celebration of Discipline. Foster said this. He said, to stand before the Holy One of Eternity is to change. To stand before the Holy One of Eternity is to change. What he's saying is that you simply don't have an encounter with the creator of the universe. You simply don't have an encounter with a holy, righteous, glorious, and just God. And emerge on the other side unchanged. You see, God who is unchanging is in the business of changing others. So keep that in mind. He won't leave you unchanged. The second observation that I want us to keep in mind as we dig into these stories is the fact that we as humans imitate the things that we truly worship. We're wired that way. That's why there's thousands of kids on the playground trying to shoot like Steph Curry, right? That's why there are a thousand more that are on YouTube trying to sing like Beyonce. We imitate the things that we worship. My granddad on my mom's side, we called him Daddy Young. He had a bad knee, a really bad knee. So his leg was at a really awkward angle, and my Daddy Young walked with a very pronounced limp wherever he went. And my older brother, Warren, went through a phase in his life where he worshipped his granddad. He worshipped his daddy, Young. 
And it was really amusing to watch my granddad walk and my brother, about 10 years old, walking behind him with his healthy, young knee at an angle with a pronounced limp. He was imitating what he worshipped. And as we dig into these Bible stories, I want us to keep in mind that it's impossible to enter into the presence of God and emerge unchanged. And also to remember that we imitate the things we worship. So now let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Let's see what we can learn from Isaiah as he enters into the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah is describing this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. What a scene. God high and exalted on his throne. Indescribable creatures calling out his praises back and forth over and over. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And doors are shaking and smoke is filling the temple. What does that scene have to do with us? Well, this isn't just a vision of Isaiah's God. No, this is a vision of our God. It's the same God. The same God who is present here and now. And you see, if we don't see and hear the seraphs, and if we don't feel the door shaking, and if we don't smell the smoke, I think it's only because we choose not to hear. We choose not to see. We choose not to smell. Or maybe it's because we didn't come in here expecting anything to happen. We didn't come in here expecting to hear and see and smell. Maybe because we didn't enter these doors expecting to enter into the presence of God. Because I'm convinced that if we enter in expectation, if we enter looking for God in his word and looking for God in his people, 
if we enter listening for God in prayers and listening for God in songs, if we approach the communion table knowing that he is there, I'm convinced that we will see him. We will hear him. We will find him. And like Isaiah, when we do see God's holiness, when we do see his glory, it makes us see ourselves for who we truly are. Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And somehow I've seen the Lord Almighty. You see, when we enter into God's presence, we are exposed. Our secrets are revealed. All pretenses that we have are removed. And when we enter into God's presence, we are convicted. We're convicted of our need to change. Our need to change and become more holy because he is holy. And not only are we convicted of our need to change, we're convicted of our very profound debt. You see, in this place, we see clearly that our guilt has been taken away. That our sins have been atoned for. That Jesus is our live coal that's been taken from the altar to touch our lips and cleanse us and make us pure. And since we have been revealed and since we have been exposed for who we truly are, and since we have been convicted of our need to change and our overwhelming date, we're open to his call. We're open to hear his voice. Open to hear him as he says, whom shall I send? And once we've opened ourselves to his call, we're able to truly and finally commit to fulfilling our role. Our role in his mission. Finally free to say, here am I, Lord, send me. What happens when we enter God's presence? Well, Isaiah shows us that it changes the way that we see ourselves. It convicts us of our debts. It convicts us of our need to change. And it opens us to God's call to commit ourselves to our role in his mission. We can't remain unchanged. Well, sometimes the change we need from God's presence that we find here as we come together on Sundays, sometimes the change we need is because of what's happening out there. Happening out there on all those other days. Sometimes we need to come here into God's presence to pull us back from the edge. To keep us from falling. The 73rd Psalm is a remarkable illustration of someone who's standing on the edge, just one step away from falling. We just got back from a trip to the Grand Canyon with my parents, and I got a whole new appreciation for this psalm at that point. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? How many of you have been at the edge of the Grand Canyon with a sheer drop off thousands of feet below you? I haven't. I was back here at the Grand Canyon. But I watched people at the very edge of the Grand Canyon, and I could feel myself becoming physically ill 
as I watch them on the edge of the canyon. One slip, one step away from falling. Not 18 inches, but thousands of feet. Here in the 73rd Psalm, we're going to hear about someone who's standing on that edge. Listen to how the psalm starts. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It sounds like a normal psalm, right? But then it quickly takes a dark turn. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I almost went over the edge. Well, why? Well, because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We see quickly, this isn't going to be one of those kumbaya moments, one of those kumbaya psalms, right? No, this psalm is raw and it's real and I think it's very relatable. He's on the edge. He's about to give up. He isn't seeing the point in having a pure heart. He's thinking to himself, surely God is good to the pure. But when I look around me, it seems like he's especially good to the wicked. Because they're the ones who keep on prospering. So in verse 4, he says, the wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. It's raw and real and relatable. He's on the edge. He's ready to give up. He isn't sure that there's any point in continuing to follow and imitate God. He's right on the edge. Verse 13, he says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Because all day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Can you relate? He's not sure there's a point. He's not sure there's a purpose in following God. But listen to things turn. Listen to how he's pulled back from the edge. Verse 16, he says, When I tried to understand all of this, when I tried to understand why good things happen to bad people and why bad things happen to good people, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Until. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. He was on the edge. Until he entered the presence of God. And it was there that he understood the the final destiny of evil people. The evil people he had envied. So listen to his conclusion, verse 21. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. But now... But now I know that I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion forever. 
Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. What do we learn from this psalmist? We learn that it's good to be near God. It's good to come into God's presence. Because being in his presence is what pulls us back from the edge. And when we enter his presence, it's there that we recognize that he's indeed always there. He's always with us. He's always holding our hand. Holding our hand even when we're standing on the edge. And he's always guiding us. And even though we may be suffering while others seem to be prospering, when we come into God's presence, we're reminded. We're reminded that he's going to take us with him. He's going to take us home to live with him forever. So what happens when we enter into God's presence? Well, his presence pulls us back from the edge. It keeps us from falling. One more Bible story about the presence of God. This time we're going to be in the New Testament. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. First, let me give you some background as we go into this story. We're in Jerusalem. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. Peter has preached the sermon on Pentecost. Thousands have been baptized. The church has been established. Peter has miraculously healed a crippled man. And the religious big shots are getting very nervous. They're getting very nervous because there's this ragtag group of Jesus followers who are the talk of the town. And they're on the verge of leading a revolution. So what do they do? Well, they have Peter and John arrested. They're the highest profile. They're the most outspoken of Jesus' disciples. They have them arrested. And all of the religious big shots get together and they ask Peter and John some questions. And they begin their questioning by saying this. They say, by what power or what name do you do this? Do you preach? Do you heal? And Peter Peter boldly affirms that they preach and they heal by the name of Jesus Christ and only by the name of Jesus Christ. And he adds the Jesus Christ whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And then we read this, verse 13. When they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus Let me pull some words and phrases out of there. First word is ordinary. See, everybody could see that Peter and John were just ordinary men. The next word I want to pull out is astonished. See, the the big shot religious leaders were astonished that such ordinary men could be so astonishingly bold and so astonishingly Powerful. They were astonished. And they took note. They took note of what? Well, they took note. They noticed. They marked it down that these men had been with Jesus. 
So let's connect all of those things together. Astonishingly, these ordinary men are able to do extraordinary things because they have been with Jesus. Because they have been with Jesus. And astonishingly, when commanded by the big shots to keep their mouths shut about Jesus, these ordinary men say this, verse 19. Say, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. What happens when we enter into God's presence? What happens when we spend time with Jesus? See, when we come together and we enter into God's presence, His presence makes the ordinary extraordinary. And Peter and John, they'd been with Jesus. And because they had been with Jesus, others were astonished. And they were, Peter and John, were extraordinarily transformed. That's what happens when you enter into God's presence. And so we We who are ordinary men and ordinary women, we enter into his presence in order to be transformed. Because he's promised. He's promised through his power to make the ordinary extraordinary. So my prayer is that you came here today expecting to encounter God. But I know from my own personal experience that you may have expected no such thing. My prayer is that you came here today expecting to leave change, not the same person you were when you walked in the door. But I also know from my own experience that you may have come with no such expectation. My prayer is that you came here today expecting to experience transformation came here expecting to see God take you in another step. Take you another step towards using your ordinary abilities in extraordinary ways. But I know from my personal experience that you may not have come here expecting anything like that to happen. And so I want to leave you with some words. Some words for the future, some words for next Sunday, and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that. Some words that I believe will help lead us to transforming worship. So number one, I want to encourage you to approach every assembly. Every time we're together, I want to encourage you to walk through the doors every Sunday with the expectation that God will speak to you in some way. Through scriptures, through songs, through a brother or sister, through sermons, through prayers, through the bread, and through the wine. Walk through the doors every Sunday with the expectation that God will speak to you. Number two, I want to encourage you to come through the doors with your eyes wide open. Come through the doors looking for God, looking for God's holiness, looking for God's glory, looking for God to appear in this place. Come through the doors with your eyes open. 
Number three, I want to encourage you to come through the doors, prepare to be convicted of your need to change. Come through the doors, prepare to be exposed. Prepare to be laid bare. Prepare to see yourself as you truly are. Come through the doors, prepare to be convicted of your need to change. And number four, I want to encourage you to come through the doors open. Open to hear his call, your personal call from God. Come through the doors open to hearing God ask you if you will go where he wants to send you. Come through the doors open to hear. And finally, number five, I want to encourage you to come through the doors ready to commit yourself to your role in his mission. Prepare to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. And I'm convinced that if we'll all do that, if we'll all walk through the doors with those expectations, if we'll all do that, everybody, us and the world around us will be astonished by the extraordinary things God is going to accomplish through ordinary people like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to enter your presence. Father, to hear our prayers, to hear our songs, to hear our words, Father, to listen to our hearts. Thank you for that extraordinary privilege. And Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who cleanses us, the one who has atoned for our sins, that allows us to be in your presence and not be Father, utterly destroyed. Father, our desire is to worship you with all of our beings. And Father, to imitate you as we worship you. And Father, use us. Father, lay us bare. Open us up. Expose us for who we are. Convict us, Father. Convict us of our debts to you. Father, convict us of our need to change. Father, open us up to your call. And Father, help us to answer your call by saying, here I am. Do with me what you will. And Father, I pray that the world around us will be astonished at what you accomplish through us. Extraordinarily ordinary people. I pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. I want to end by giving you uncomfortable challenge number 38. And this is a praying challenge. I want to challenge you to every day this week, at least once on every day this week, as you look forward to walking through those doors next Sunday, to pray this prayer. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up. I want to see you shining in the light of your glory. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, as I sing holy, holy, holy. Let's stand and sing. Sing, Lord, like a shepherd.